You're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno, and I want to welcome you to the Macro Trading Floor. It is the most actionable macro trading floor you find out there, so we'll promise you to be actionable by the end of the macro discussion. We try to be actionable also earlier if we manage, Andreas. Not always. Sometimes we get lost in talking about pizza and other stuff, but um, off speaking, it's late evening, guys, here in Europe. Please allow us to banter a bit more than usual, shall we, Andreas? <laughs> Let's yeah, yeah. chat about the, the what the pineapple on pizza. No, no. Let's do let's do CPI in the U.S. It's the 13th of October as we speak, and today there has been quite an interesting CPI report. So, what do you what do you think of it? Well, um, I think the big surprise here is basically the driver of the core inflation again. Uh, so we have a component called the shelter cost, which is clearly driving inflation now. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that core inflation is, is now surprising on the upside uh, for the second month running after we had that glimpse of hope a couple of months back with um, a slowing acceleration, at least, in, um, in the core inflation number. Mm -hmm. So even though inflation probably has peaked, and I dare to say that again, at least if you look at it in headline terms, I don't think the Fed will take any whatsoever comfort in this uh, inflation print, uh, not least due to the fact that the sticky part of inflation is running way too hot. So I still think we need to focus on that part of the equation and not so much that the peak is probably in when you look at headline numbers. Uh, what do you make of it, Elf? I have to think like the Fed because ultimately it's not about what we want or what we think they should do, it's what they will do, right? And uh, the Fed, I think, goes like this. We want the momentum of inflation to slow, we want the sticky part of inflation to slow down, we want nominal wages to drop and all that nice stuff. So when you look at the report today, you have only preliminary indication that nominal wages are kind of plateauing, but at excessive levels, not consistent with 2% inflation at all. And then when you look at core services x energy and food oh, basically i'm detracting a lot of stuff from it but ultimately it's like supposed to be the most sticky part of the inflationary basket it just printed at the highest year-on-year -year rate over 40 years so yeah. the momentum of that stuff isn't slowing down the sticky parts of the inflationary basket aren't uh, declining and wages are still pretty elevated truth to be said andreas unfortunately um, rent of shelter is measured, as you already highlighted on Twitter plenty of times, in a, in a quite interesting way that basically makes so that even if rents are literally slowing, in September in the US there was the first month-on-month -month decline in asking rents for the first time in several quarters going back in history. But that's not reflected in rent of shelter in the CPI calculations because of the methodology, as you already described a couple of times. So we'll have to wait. It's like the Federal Reserve is setting policy looking in the rear view mirror, not in front of them. No. And, and I mean, um, the reason is that it's basically a survey uh, and they only take a portion of that survey month after month. Yeah. So it will take quite a while before they actually get to the point where they have surveyed the <laughs> entire population, so to speak. Uh, and uh, therefore, I, I usually look at the shelter component uh, with roughly 12 to 18 months of time lag from the actual developments in the market. Uh, so it takes quite a while. I, I think the Fed is aware of this to a certain extent. Uh, but I mean, 
so far they obviously cannot rely on such usual uh, lead lap patterns uh, since it's just running way too hot. Uh, so my take is still that this is not a report that will comfort anyone within the Federal Reserve. Um, and I think they have their eyes firmly set on 4.5% or thereabout in the Fed funds, also given today's report. I Andreas, I think um, it might actually be even uh, higher. And it's just a mechanical adjustment. So I came out with something that I finally called the Powell Credibility Indicator. It's just the real Fed funds future price the year from now. And it, the story is very simple. In the past, the Federal Reserve, when they wanted to send a signal about being committed to slow down inflation, they normally told markets they would hike nominal Fed funds way above prevailing inflation rates. It's a very simplistic way of doing things, but ultimately that's what they want to do. So that's what matters. And the market is assigning um, some credibility to Powell, I have to say, because it's real Fed funds rate a year from now, before the CPI print, were already priced north of 1% positive real rates, real Fed funds rates. And the, the problem is that if inflation uh, takes some time to slow down to a level which is relatively comfortable for the Fed, and I know you have done some work on that, that also mechanically might mean that the Federal Reserve is kind of forced to bring terminal rates slightly higher and maybe keep them there for longer. And if you look at the reaction of two-year bond yields today with terminal rates priced almost to 5% in the US, I have to say this is not totally rational to me. And I don't want to say that's the right policy, but again, what I think it's right doesn't matter. It's what the Federal Reserve will do. But you, you have done some work on the path of inflation ahead, looking at forward-looking indicators and, and other components forward-looking indicators, so say six to 12 months from now, point clearly south for the inflation number, uh, then I get um, a truckload of pushback um, from basically all angles. Um, and I think the reason is that um, it's kind of a story that we've heard before. Uh, I've even tried to pitch that story myself earlier this year. Uh, I perfectly admit to that. I was too early on calling uh, the peak. Uh, but in any case, if we look at forward-looking indicators. Let's try and, and deduct them uh, one after one. First of all, the big ISM index. Um, it's one of the subcomponents uh, is asking about prices paid to suppliers. Uh, and if we look at, at that subcomponent, it's, it's back at levels just above 50. Um, and it has a lead time of roughly four to six months on the um, inflation index. So it points to inflation around 4% in six months from now. That's number one. So prices paid to suppliers are not increasing anymore, not to any material extent. Secondly, if you ask small and medium-sized corporates about their price plans for the next quarter, uh, you also get the response that they don't intend to hike prices to the extent that they did last quarter. Uh, and that's also an interesting signal because usually they tell the truth. I mean, if they intend on hiking, prices they will say so in this survey uh, and um, right now they don't have these plans and again if you look at the historical correlation it points to levels around four to five percent of inflation in six months from now so again still way too high but still lower um, then you have uh, stuff like money growth uh, so if you look at decently wide money measures such as M2 and look at the yearly growth in, in, um, in the amount of dollars uh, measured by the M2 uh, then we are closing in on zero growth in the broader money supply, uh, which is quite interesting. If you look at uh, various other liquidity measures, we are clearly below zero already when it comes to growth. Um, so I would argue that the monetaristic approach to this would suggest that in 12 months or 18 months from now, we will 
face much lower inflation as a consequence of lower growth of the money supply. Um, and finally, I tend to think that the US dollar is a harbinger of what comes next for global inflation, not necessarily US inflation. But when you see a very strong US dollar, as we do right now, it's typically something that filters through to the global economy in a negative way uh, via a couple of channels. Uh, first of all, global trade. Uh, it's simply much more expensive to conduct trade in US dollars, which is uh, usually the most used currency, right? Um, so there is a clearly negative relationship between the strength of the dollar and the, tr and the global trade volume. Uh, and then secondly, we know that a lot of um, emerging market countries, they, they hold foreign debt in, in, in dollars. So you usually also expect the spillovers in a negative way um, to, um, to the um, uh, strength of the economy in emerging market space and, and elsewhere as a consequence of a strong dollar. So when you look at usual correlations between the dollar index and global inflation, then I would also argue that it points down in six, nine months from now, but still to levels around four to 5%. So I guess this is the easy part of bringing inflation down. Then comes the tricky part of. <laughs> Excellent analysis, Andreas, as I'm often used with you. Um, I also like that you're a big picture person. So after describing why inflation should trend down, you said, yes, but the most important thing is that indicators still point to inflation roughly in the four to 5% area. And that's the most relevant thing to me because the Federal Reserve will never be okay with 4% inflation. If you don't score a goal and the goal being 2% inflation is not my moving the goalpost to, to an easier spot to you and scoring that you can say, hey, I scored. No, you, you don't. You don't regain credibility this way. Which also brings me to think that you know, people are talking about how the bond market is broken. The bond market is merely trying to adjust and reflect to a, a, new, a new monetary policy stance by the Fed. So a broken bond market, Andres, in my experience, it's what happened during the pandemic. I was running money back then, and I clearly, remarkably remember trying to ask for an offer in 100 million European bonds, and the market makers would like, eh, nope. So what do you mean, nope? What's the price? No price. So what are, you, what are you talking about? And they would simply say, look, I mean, there is absolutely no liquidity here. You are the liquidity provider. There is no ability to warehouse risks. There is... The repo market is kind of non-functional. That's a broken bond market. And today, the only thing that is happening is that because of post-regulation, post-great financial crisis regulation, market makers don't have the same capacity to warehouse risk, which means that with this huge volatility and value-at-risk models that are based on you know, volatility measures that are the past five to 10 years, very low vol measures, they simply do not allow market makers to take any meaningful risk. So if you want them to take risk from you or with you, they will charge you more. So this is not a bond market, a broken bond market. This is just a bond market trying to adjust to a new reality, which probably is likely to stay here. Yeah, but I think there's a slight reminiscence between what happened during the pandemic in the US Treasury market and what happened in the UK gilt market over the past oh, couple of weeks. Yes. Um, so if, if you look in, in, uh, at the UK market in isolation, there is probably a bit of resemblance to, to what the Fed did because they simply provided exit liquidity to a lot of funds being met by margin calls back in, um, in March 2020 um, when, I mean, when the S&P was falling apart, right? Uh, and it's exactly the same thing that the Bank of England is trying to, to obtain now. They want to provide the pension funds with a massive amount of exit liquidity um, to ensure that they can rebalance without distorting the market too much. Um, I don't know whether they will succeed, but um, let's hope so. I don't think the odds are 
very much in favor. I mean, you, I think you posted something from Milton Friedman on Twitter that said any, any temporary government program ends up not being temporary or something along these lines, right? And uh, this is one of the situations. If pension funds would have access to a, to a repo facility sponsored by the Bank of England together with um, market makers, we the first lost tranche maybe from market makers and then backed up by some guarantees from the central bank to temporarily provide access to, uh, to some collateral facility, some repo facility uh, towards pension funds. This would be a more sustainable solution, just lifting some bonds under this and then saying, are we going to stop lifting them? Fire sale all your assets within the next three days after that you're fucked. And then coming to the Financial Times and saying, no, no, no it's not true. We just scared them out. Eh? We, but, but in reality, we'll keep buying bonds. I don't think this is the right strategy here. No. And it's quite a weird policy mix that they're trying to run right now, hiking interest rates while buying bonds. But um, let's see whether they can actually try and back paddle from that. I, I have my doubts as well. But there is one thing I wanted to mention ultimately. And I think we two, the two of us, we perfectly agree on that. Given where forward real rates are trading now, I don't think that markets will hold up. I think it's that simple. Uh, we've seen it before when real rates are trading substantially in positive territory, and we are now even trading in, in more positive territory than what we saw ahead of, of, of former sell-offs in equities. Um, then after, usually after a while, I'd say between 30 and 60 trading days, we get a reaction. Yeah, don't steal one of the top arguments from our guest of the day. It's time to call him in. It's now time to introduce the guest of the week. And uh, this week, it's actually my former boss. So welcome, Michael Sava, the head of strategy and quant at Nordea Markets. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you guys. Nice to have you here, Michael program is called the macro trading floor you're sitting in a trading floor so that's cool uh first question is a very panoramic one which is going to be how do you see markets and macro right now just walk us through please um, from a big picture perspective yes of course i will do that well uh, i'm in the camp that clearly believe that there will be a recession uh, and that we're entering that one a consumer-driven recession uh, that has been forced through by basically two things, uh, inflation eating up real spending power, uh, together with central banks being more aggressive than they've basically ever been in modern times in terms of the speed of the uh, uh, rate increases, but also in terms of, of how the liquidity is deteriorating from the central bank side. Uh, and, and I do think that that will lead to a situation uh, where households will gradually pull back on consumption, a more of a traditional recession that we saw uh, during COVID, of course, and that we also will see a period next year rising unemployment. Uh, mix this together with what we're seeing in all Western worlds, probably housing markets going the wrong way. Uh, and uh, at so far, at least, if we look at the equity market, an equity market that from a valuation point only has reacted to the new interest rate environment and hasn't really taken into account the risks or uh, what I find more than risks of an earnings recession. Uh, and if we put all of that together, if we were to uh, return to more normal risk premiums within the equity market, uh, that would probably take a, a, a turn to the worst for something like 25 or 30% down for the S&P or something. Uh, so that would be my overall or overarching kind of view on, on the macro central bank and, and, and equity market. 
It sounds as if it's not time to open the champagne, at least, Michael. I think we can <laughs> conclude that initially here. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you because, uh, I mean, since you're my former boss, I know quite a few of the models that you're running. Um, and I mean, in, in my humble opinion, no one's better at charting the world of macro than you. Um, and I know you run quite a few models on the liquidity landscape of global central banks. So please try and take us through your current current view on liquidity. How bad, bad is it? Uh, the, the way, basically, the, the, the first indicator I always look at uh, when I start to make a, a view over the coming one and a half years, looking at what central banks are doing in terms of narrow su money supply uh, and what's happening there, uh, and, and, and then uh, use that uh, as the sort of early leading indicator for, for where the, the world is heading. And uh, what I've found over the years that that has a pretty powerful lag of about up to one and a half a year uh, what, what, and, and then sort of ending up in, in where the economy is heading and heading into 2022 you could already see that narrow money supply growth had, had decelerated quite a bit. Uh, looking at it now it looks terrible to say the least uh, and, and it, it's clearly indicating that we're probably in for a period during most of 2023 where we should be in a recession uh, at least if, if, if history is any guide. Michael, when, when we talk about money supply, um, are we referring to M2 or to what measure are you looking at? And can you also walk us through a little bit the process for which what measure of money supply you're looking at should lead actually economic growth uh, 15 to 18 months forward? Now, what we what I'm looking at is basically M1. Uh, that's usually what I, what what I what I end up with, and, and what I do is I, I take sort of M1 from 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 the, the larger countries, uh, and then I also add uh, uh, a a measure uh, which is custody holdings at the Fed of of uh, foreign central banks as a kind of a proxy for for emerging market liquidity, uh, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and 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 the way I do it, I weigh it together uh, to get a a proxy for I would say uh, liquidity or money supply. I wouldn't say that it's the absolute truth because it isn't, but it's had a very, very strong correlation and, and, and a good lead then uh, to the economies uh, uh, over, the, over the years. And it's always been fairly accurate in at least pinpointing the turning points. Uh, and and, and so, so that's when I start out. Uh, uh, and I haven't felt any need to change that at this point, I have to admit. Uh, and now, on top of that, I would also add that if you look at what the interest rates are doing now, uh, this time, in terms of, of, of the speed of increases, we've kind of never seen anything like it. And 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 uh, I mean, that you can, of course, correlate with many things. It leads the the changes in ISM. I know Steano uses that model a lot as well. Uh, and it tells you that it would be very strange unless we get into a quite severe uh, recession next year. Yeah, I think that um, rates model points to an ISM level of in between 30 and 35 during the first half of next year. Uh, so it's not pretty, uh, to, to say it the least, Michael. But if, if you look at central banks right now uh, and the amount of liquidity tightening and interest rate tightening that we've seen conducted throughout the year, would you consider them done or do they need to do more? No, I, I would say that they they uh, they should be at the end phase. So what they're doing, and and and, and I mean, you you can discuss whether they they're making a mistake or not in doing this. Personally, I think the mistake has been the past 10, 12 years uh, in in forcing real rates too low for too long. 
and also with the QE pro programs depressing all risk premiums in the markets and, and, and in the economy economy. So it's to me it's not the, the mistake is not taking up yields now. It's the, the, the mistakes of the past that, that really is the problem. Uh, but of course, uh, if you want the business cycle to survive and if you want to sort of at least not uh, have a hard crash, uh, then they should stop instantly, uh, I, I would claim. Uh, I don't think they will do that. Uh, that's, of course, two different uh, questions, whether I, I believe they will do it or what I think they should do. However, uh, if they were to stop it right now, I would hope that they don't turn around and start doing what they have been doing for the past 12 years, but rather than that they let things uh, basically uh, uh, solve themselves through time uh, rather than, than any massive rate cuts or any new QE pro programs. Yeah. But uh, Michael, that brings me to another sort of policymaker intervention because central banks have been pretty clear about what they want to do here, which is to make sure that demand basically cools down and inflation rolls over as well. But the other side of policymaking, so basically governments have been very active over the last six or 12 months at least in trying to stem the private sector bleeding uh, coming from the energy crisis problem. So can I pick your brain on what do you think policymakers will effectively be enforcing there? Will the private sector suffer? Will they protect the private sector balance sheet? To what extent and what are the long-term consequences of doing that? Yeah, my, my uh, take on that would be that, I mean, we've already seen it, that they will try to, 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 to soften the blow from particularly electricity prices now and the whole energy side of it. And they will probably do that. It, it's about softening the blow, I would say. It's not like a COVID stimulus package where you sort of get much more stimulus than you should have. Uh, so I don't think it takes, uh, it will not be enough to divert this re recessionary scenario that I have. Then I, I think it's the question of, because of course what we saw in the aftermath of COVID now and with the combination of very, very large fiscal stimulus programs, the largest we've seen in ages, together with central banks uh, backing that up with, with a lot of purchases of bonds, uh, which is kind of what led us to this inflation situation. So uh, my uh, take on that is that, and, and me being a Sweden, having, having uh, experienced that in the past, uh, we are in, uh, some has pointed to the sort of the, the kind of a rebirth of the bond vigilantes here. Uh, so I'm, I, I, my guess would be that it would be much more difficult for them this time to push any large fiscal stimulus packages through. Uh, I, I think there would be a, a lot less uh, willingness from private in, investors to, to buy into that story bond-wise. And of course, where we are now with nominal uh, uh, interest rates having come up quite a bit, when inflation comes down here, uh, we probably will have periods with nominal uh, interest rates higher than nominal growth at some point here. Uh, that is not a good debt situation to be in at all, because usually what, what happens then is kind of exploding uh, debts, uh, an exploding debt situation. Uh, Sweden was there in the sort of mid 90s, 93, 94, particularly 94. Uh, what happened then was that interest rates, uh, people would uh, basically didn't want to buy any bonds and, and long-term interest rates shot up by five percentage points over like a six month period. Uh, I, I see, see a much greater risk of that happening now again than uh, I guess any time in the past since then in a sense. So I think the, the, the fiscal policy tool can be used to some extent and some countries can use it more than other, of course, Sweden being one of them. Uh, but but uh, I, I think the, the, the experience from the COVID uh, stimulus packages show that it's going to be with a lot of costs combined this time if they try to. 
You initially told us that um, if we get this earnings recession paired with the current uh, climate of higher discount rates, the S&P 500 could drop another 25%. But if we move on to talk about bond prices in this scenario that you just depicted, I mean, it doesn't sound as, as a positive scenario either. But my my point being here that we've seen quite an interesting development just this week uh, out of the UK with the central bank having to step in due to the domestic pension fund sector simply complaining their way to a QE program as far as I can uh, I can tell so what do you make of the bond market in this uh, current scenario with Bank of England now directly intervening the way I read it, it, it it's uh, you know it, it, it emanates from from uh, once again having too low uh, uh, interest rates for too long uh, which has led to uh, basically the pension set sector uh, having parts of their, their 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 money management doing basically hedge fund stuff which they shouldn't do in terms of, of leveraging and, and trying to pick up some extra basis points uh, on uh, because of the need need of a return here and 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 of course what, what that has led to is is working within sort of the the swaps market and option markets i guess uh, probably with a, with, with a sort of a vault component in it. And then suddenly you end up with margin calls and then you have to sell something to pay those margin calls. And then the only thing you can sell is basically your bonds. And then you'll do that and you'll do it into a market where we know that since all the regulations that has come on board after the financial crisis and, and a lot of other uh, stuff, uh, basically liquidity is nowhere near where it used to be. So uh, I, I don't think any Western market would be able to swallow uh, that types of flows at this moment. Uh, we know it very much from Sweden where liquidity is basically zero right now. Uh, and that is what, is ha what has happened there. And, and of course, uh, given that this is an effect of, of having too low rates for too long, it could happen happen elsewhere as well, I would, would suspect. Uh, but I'm not an expert of it. So uh, probably Alf is better on it than, than I am. Remember, Michael, I can only back up your story of um, the warehousing capacity of risk takers being completely slashed. I remember uh, the COVID crisis when trying to lift some bonds out there and market makers would tell me after is no offer. Like, guys, what are you talking about? You are the market. Yeah, the market is broken. You are supposed to provide liquidity. In this market, I would be like, no, 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 can't take any risks. What? So, and it's all about regulation. You're totally right. So that really doesn't help and it exacerbates the problem right here. Michael, we talked about a lot of your uh, macro indicators and what they're pointing at. When we try and take positions in markets, we always look at what's priced in, right? So we need to discuss as well, uh, where do you think both in equity, in credits, in effects, in rates, where do you see the most inconsistent pricing right now? Uh, walk us through a bit uh, how you see markets pricing at the moment stuff. Yeah, sure. Let's start in, in, in the bond space uh, and, and, and looking at what I expect central banks to do here. I, I would say that I think the US uh, uh, market in terms of what we're discounting in the short end side is probably pretty fair at this point. Uh, that, that we will peak rates at somewhere between four and a half and five. Uh, uh, and I think also it's fair to, to start to, to discount rate cuts the second half of next year. However, the Fed will not be okay with that for quite some time, but I do think that we will end up there anyway. So in that sense, it looks pretty fair. However, what, I, what, what I've also said about the long-term interest rates and, and for that matter also long real rates is that 
as long as the Fed continues to hike rates, it, it never basically happens that long end yields peak very much before that. So if you expect the Fed to continue to hike, say into Q1 next year or Q2 next year, you shouldn't expect long-term yields to peak very much before that. So that, that's sort of my, my view on that. Also in the past, at least from the mid eighties, basically the 10 year in the US has always peaked fairly at least at or above the, the where the, the Fed funds target uh, peaks. So if you have a peak there of 475, I think there's still some upside on, on that market, even though that I generally find the short end discounted fairly right. I think the equity market is more problematic in the sense that if I look at the equity risk premium, if we take S&P 500 as an example here, uh, and the way I calculate the, the equity risk premium is basically taking the forward P, inverting it so you get the earnings yield, and then you 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 subtract the, the U.S. ten-year yield as as a, sort of a risk-free interest rate uh, uh, indicator. Then you end up with a risk uh, premium of about two and a half percent right now. Uh, the average is around four percent. Both if you look since the, 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 the financial crisis, and then if you look, would look at over 100 years, you would end up at around 4% risk premium. Uh, and uh, so it's a very low risk premium. Uh, and it tells you that the market has not taken into account an, an earnings risk, uh, sorry, an earnings recession scenario. Normally, if you'd look at the, the past four earnings recessions, and I include the, the euro crisis and that, uh, the equity risk premium has, has spiked at least to 5%, often gone to 6 7 and 8%. So if you're going to pull up the, the, the risk premium from two and a half to five, then you get a downside of about 25%. But it could also be a scenario where you need to take it up a bit more. And then it's quite easily about 40% down. So it is the equity market to me that stands out being not uh, logically uh, discounted right now. Uh, and, 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 but it's also the timing of it is, is, looks a little bit like it's always done. Uh, we, we are in the situation now where I think that earnings estimate will be taken down quite massively over the coming six to nine months. Uh, and it tends to be then where, where the big moves comes. And we haven't really seen the household sector yet uh, showing any big worries about their equity positions that are quite large compared to what they usually are. And if we look in the past, they usually sell off their equity funds and so on, basically when unemployment starts increasing, which I suspect will happen next year. So I think that pricing looks looks quite uh, bad in a sense. If you turn it to the corporate bond market, I would claim that the corporate bond market uh, in terms of spreads, uh, they've, uh, in, uh, they're including much more of a risk premium than the equity market is uh, at the current yield levels. I still think that, 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 that uh, credit spreads will widen further in, in my scenario, uh, but at, comparing it to equities, I would be much rather in corporate bonds than equities. I mean, if you look at a corporate 10-year triple B uh, yield in the US, you get an equal yield on that as the earnings yield of the S&P. Historically, the earnings yield of the S&P should probably be 200 basis points above. So, so that's a little bit how I would sum up everything on that. Absolutely fair assessment, in, in my opinion, Miki. And I, I need to admit here live on the macro trading flow that you texted me probably three or four months ago that you, you shouldn't buy the long bond until the Fed actually pivots. Uh, and you've been spot on um, and I've been wrong. But thankfully, I've held my um, my position open in US dollars. So it's um, it's at least been um, sort, of, uh, sort of a factor um, squaring the position a little bit seen from European soil. 
I wanted to pick your brain on a survey that I know that you follow on a monthly basis. Bank of America conducts this survey among position takers every month, asking them whether they are upbeat in their positioning or not. Um, we have a load of sub surveys in, in that survey for Bank of America. But basically, if you look across the board right now, the asset managers, they're telling you that they have very little risk on their books relative to history. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's a very good question, and 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 of course, it's one of those indicators that kind of always, uh, you know, it, it tells you that okay, if people are that that bearish, then then the market can't go down from here. And I would have the totally opposite opinion of that because if we look a little bit how that survey has looked over time, and and I usually do the comparison with two thousand two thousand and eight, when basically all of the fund managers were as bearish as they are now in terms of believing being in falling profits in an economy that was tanking. And also at that point said that they were very short equities and had quite a lot of cash. Uh, then the S&P still managed to drop another 45% after that. Uh, and I think the problem here is, is, is partly that I think the institutional crowd is probably uh, it's not the, the, the guys that decide this. The households would be the guys that decide this at the end. Uh, and, 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 and I think what, what we are lacking here and what we will see is that they will start selling. I mean, these are fund managers, so they're dependent on what the clients are doing, i.e. the households. So if the household starts to, to, to take out money, it doesn't matter whether the, the fund managers are super bearish or not. That will push the market anyway, because then they have to sell uh, equities. So, 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 so that would be my call on that one, uh, and and so, so it is difficult, much more difficult to use than than I think most people would would, would think in terms of uh, as being a, a a a an indicator of that bearishness have gone too far and so on, because at the end of the day, what really uh, uh, matters is the trend in profits for the equity market and the trend in the labor market. That, the next step in terms of being uh, triggering households to need to take down the risk and so on. Michael, what do you make of um, the FX market, which is another market which was basically killed in volatility terms for a decade, mm -hmm. one can say, apart some uh, temporary outbursts here and there. It's now back to life again. So is there anything in particular that you're looking at, um, not necessarily the dollar itself, but maybe something else in the FX market that is catching your attention at the moment? I mean, it is clear still, I mean, I think we have to go through the dollar, however we want to look at the equity market. It kind of decides mostly everything. And and I've been in sort of the strong dollar camp for quite some time from basically when Stiano worked with me, we were together. And I've yet seen enough evidence to believe that we're we're exiting that story. I think that in my scenario, we will get one more leg of, of, of dollar strength. And of course, that is triggering all other currencies to do what they're doing. And with the yen, uh, you know, doing what it is doing. Uh, we've seen FX interventions that usually do not work anyway, but but in my mind, it's a waste of money, but they do it anyway. Uh, and, and of course, you see all the small illiquid country, uh, currencies uh, puking, uh, not least the SIEC uh, up at 11 versus the euro today. Uh, I probably will break that. It could definitely go to 12 versus the dollar, which would be the worst we've ever seen. So I still think we are in that kind of environment where, where the dollar is king uh, and, and, and that all the other smaller currencies or other currencies are, are, in, uh, are in the problem. Uh, um, is that good or bad? 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it ties together with sort of the risk off idea I have generally of the world that we still haven't passed the worst of this yet. I, I've personally um, transferred some of my excess cash to LATAM currencies, okay. so Mexico yeah. and Brazil. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it's really a world upside down when you have to seek shelter in Latin America. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, but uh, so far, it's worked pretty well for me. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm still up on the year, even though I've had a few bad bets in, in the bond space. But Michael, um, we have quite the institutional following on this podcast. And one of the key questions to answer uh, in an institutional setting is always whether to hold the long bond or hold the broad equity market. So do you rather prefer a long bond or an index position in equities over the next six months? Uh, with, with that uh, as a horizon, I would uh, clearly prefer to own the long bond uh, and be underweight equities. Uh, I, I think, I mean, if we look at what's been happening this year so far, it hasn't really mattered if you've been long corporate bonds or, yeah. or, or the long bond or, or equities, you've lost an equal amount of money. All the traditional 60-40 portfolios are, of course, uh, you know, are having a very hard time, to say the least. Uh, if we look ahead, I would claim that uh, I, I, I think we are at sort of the final stretch of, of, of Fed hikes. Uh, and, and that we, we weren't uh, in the spring, uh, uh, which which at least makes a, a clear difference here. We've also seen bond yields coming up now to a level where I think they will work more as a hedge in, in a risk-off environment. So if the first uh, sort of overall risk-off phase has been driven by higher interest rates, I do think that the next phase will be driven by more of a recession uh, storyline. And then bonds should do a lot better than, than, than equities over the, the coming six to nine months, uh, in my mind. Really like uh, the fact that you're stressing out that lower bond yields, potentially lower bond yields, not necessarily reflecting to higher equities because if risk premium wide and if a recession is here, and that is the very reason why long and bold is are falling and the Fed is cutting, that's not bullish risk assets. Nope. Although, <laughs> although for the last 10 years, people are used to see lower bond yields as a reflection of central banks easing and therefore compressing risk premia, et cetera, et cetera. This time it doesn't work. That paradigm probably will not work. This is the macro trading floor, Michael. So I need to ask you now, what's the trade? Yeah, no, I'll keep it simple. And the trade is exactly what Stiana was into. I would go long the US 10-year treasury at these levels, and I would go short the S&P 500. So it's a risk premium trade, literally. Yes, it's, it's long treasuries and short equities against it. Exactly. I'm a simple guy, you know. Yeah. Simple guy. That's, I like it. That's the most <laughs> applicable trade for any cohort of money managers around the world, I would say, from households to institutional money managers. But Andreas, don't we always give our guests an early exit as well, right? So what can go wrong, Michael, in this trade? Why would you be wrong over the next six months? Well, uh, I mean, that's a very good, uh, good, good question. I, I think there are two, two uh, ways, at least in my mind, where I think it, it is the, the, the main risk. And there are in, in sort of two different uh, directions. The first if, is, of course, if I'm totally wrong on the inflation picture, that we've passed the peak, uh, that we will come down, uh, and that central banks at, over the coming six to nine months could at least relax compared to what they're doing now. Uh, I mean, there could be such a scenario, clearly. Uh, I don't think that it is there, but, but uh, you know, th that's one thing. The other scenario, it would be uh, clearly if we see central, cent not perhaps central banks, but rather uh, uh, politicians coming out with major, massive 
uh, stimulus packages, uh, uh, basically uh, sending out once again uh, tons of checks to consumers and so on. I think the equity market in such a scenario will at least start to 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 move up quite positively, and it would be a disaster for bonds. <laughs> let's let's cross our fingers that uh, we will not see yep. so-called list trustonomics across the yep. European continent. I fear it a little bit, to be honest. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's a risk. There's a risk. Yeah, Michael, it was uh, a great pleasure to host you on the macro trading floor. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice to have me. Back to the show, Andreas, without the guest, it's time to, you know, pick at him. No, not really, because probably we like the trade, but let's see. Uh, first of all, let's recap the trade. It's the 13th of October, 2022, and Michael Sarve was on the show with a very compelling story that leads him to put up the, the following trade for the next three to six months. He wants to be long US treasuries, bonds, 10 year plus, and short equities against it. So it's a relative value trade where he wants bonds to outperform equities, not necessarily deliver a positive performance per se, but do better than equities at the end of the day. So I have two questions for you. The first is, how was to interview your former boss? No, no. <laughs> the, the, the first question is, what do you make of the trade? And the second is, if people wanted to implement it, how would they do that? First of all, um, Michael's argument uh, behind the trade is very strong when you look at it in the historical context. Uh, if you look at the earnings yield on S&P 500 or the risk premium on the S&P 500 relative to what you earn from buying the long bond now, that relationship has certainly changed over the past, say, two, three quarters here now. So it, it looks kind of tempting from a relative value perspective to um, be long the bond versus being short the S&P 500 from that simple, it's kind of a simple analysis, right? You look, just look at the, what what's the yield ahead of me uh, given current pricing um, and, and then take on this relative value trade based on that analysis. And it looks compelling from a historical perspective. So I, I tend to buy it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I probably wouldn't buy the, the long bond leg on a standalone basis. Uh, I've had this position on, um, but in combination with um, trades uh, that I traded the relative value against. So I think that's important to highlight here um, because I still think it's kind of tricky to be long bonds, uh, also given what's going on in the UK and what uh, might be upcoming in other European countries as a consequence of this electricity bailout bill uh, that is ahead of us for this winter. Um, so in that, in that sense, look at it from a relative perspective, not on a standalone basis. Uh, if you want to implement it, uh, I think the most straightforward solution is to buy the TLT ETF, uh, so the long bond ETF, and then um, against it, you buy the SH, uh, which is the ProShare short S&P 500 1X uh, ETF. That's a very simple implementation, um, and it's basically exactly what Michael suggested. Yeah. I would say that um, as a way to implement, of course, using the two ETFs against each other is a, you know, cash heavy, but still a relatively straightforward way to do that. So you buy TLT, you buy SH as well, again, against it, with it, effectively, and you're short the S&P 500 and you're long, uh, long end uh, US bonds against it. So you benefit if bonds outperform equities net net in the trade um, at the end of the day. When it comes to the merits of the trade, I actually like this trade a lot. Being a relative value trade, 
um, it's basically a proxy of a risk premium trade. So what you want here is equity valuation to basically widen more than what bond yields would imply alone. So, so far this year, we've seen real yields, as you correctly say, go through the roof, also long-dated real yields, which is very rare. Um, we have five-year, five-year real yields in the U.S., north of 1%, and they started the year very negative. So there's been quite a vicious move. And equities, of course, have repriced, Andreas, but if you plot them on a chart, on a long-term regression, for example, you would see that basically what happened this year in equities is nothing else than merely reprising a stronger dollar and higher real rates. That's all that's happened. Nothing else. No widening in risk premium. No material repricing of forward earnings. None of these has happened. And the trade Michael put on is basically trying to capture one leg of a potential drawdown in equities that hasn't been um, triggered yet, which is from widening risk premium as measured by the underperformance of equities against bonds. And I think that uh, it's a pretty decent positive expected value trade to be put on. And one last thing I'm going to say is I did an analysis a week or two weeks ago that looked at what is an historical parallel for this macro environment we're in. And it's very difficult to find one because it's so unique with all this perfect storm hitting markets at the same time. But one period I found that looks remotely similar is the late 2000, beginning of 2001. We are coming from excesses in the 2000 dot-com bubble when it comes to market um, uh, to risk-taking activities. Inflation was 4% for several quarters in a row. That basically led the Fed to hike 200 basis points into 2000 and keep rates way above neutral for like a year, year and a half. And at some point, some cracks were appearing. Labor market was weakening. Uh, earnings were weakening, which resembles quite a bit, I think, where we are today. Then you look into 2001, and the Federal Reserve cut interest rates in six months by 150 basis points in 2001, 150, bringing them back to neutral, basically, and the equity markets kept falling. And the reason is that even if bond yields actually rallied, risk premiums started to widen because people were pricing in basically a recession. And there is nothing bullish about the recession. I mean, I don't know why people get so excited about the Fed cutting rates. When the Fed will be cutting rates, most likely it's because the demand destruction has been so large, so big, that at some point they need to try and repair the damage. But the damage is already there, and you need to price that damage yeah, first. I tend to agree. And um, I can add, and you can find that in my Twitter feed and on my Substack, that if you look at historical correlations between forward price to earnings multiples of the S&P 500 relative to long-end real rates, then you could actually argue that we should trade at forward PEs of, say, in between 11 and 12, and we are currently trading at 15.5, they're about, um, given today's market pricing. So, I mean, that would translate into an S&P 500 level of 2,600, they're about, on unchanged earnings, earnings assumptions. Ouch. Yeah. Ooh. But, uh, oh my God, the, the, the master bear is coming <laughs> no, here on the show. No, I, I don't, actually don't want to be the master bear, but I, I mean, I see the risks at least, let me put it like that. But if you're looking for a venue um, to trade ETFs, um, our sponsor, Saxo Bank, uh, actually provides more than 6,400 ETFs from everything to the tech sector, to healthcare, um, environment, ETFs, etc., and from other major sectors, and obviously also these index-level uh, ETFs uh, that we mentioned, TLT and um, SH. Um, so, yeah, you can, uh, you can check them out at Saxo Bank. Yeah, 
Guys, the link to check it out is goto.saxo slash macro ETF. The link will be as well, as well in the description of the podcast. Saxo Trading is a pretty decent platform, guys. Uh, suggest you go and check it out if you're looking to implement these trades. Um, Andreas, back to the show. Um, to be honest, this is the first time where I hear somebody coming. No, not the first time. We've had some pretty compelling guests where I totally agreed on the thesis. Michael came on the show. I think it was very convincing with his story. He uses forward-looking indicators. He has a process in place. So even if he might be wrong as any of us, I think this relative value trade um, sits very well within my, uh, my risk appetite and the way I look yeah. at markets. Uh, I have a slightly different way of implementing it myself. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm basically back to my, to my old theory. Um, so when a recession looms, um, I think it's, it's clearly not, or more or less not even debatable any longer that the Fed will have to break things to bring inflation down. Um, I also think they admit to it behind closed doors, by the way. But when, when you look at a recession, um, one way of looking at it is to look at it from a Maslow's hierarchy perspective. If you're a consumer during a slowdown or a, an economic crisis, what you buy is basically the bottom layer of the Maslow's hierarchy, right? While you refrain from buying stuff that is much higher in, in, in your hierarchy of needs. Um, and one way of, of looking at it is basically to look at equities with a very high multiple. Um, they are usually placed in that part of the uh, hierarchy, while stuff that you need is placed at the very bottom energy, food, stuff like that. Um, so that's another way of looking at it. You could be short the very expensive part of the equity market and long the non-expensive part if you look at it from a multiple level. Um, that's kind of the same trade. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the uh, parallel with early 2001 would favor this view where healthcare, consumer staples, massively outperformed anything else, any other sectors in the markets. Again, every period is different. Utilities back then delivered massive performance. Nowadays, utilities have a bit of a different problem stemming from energy crisis mostly, but to give a macro framework which can be adapted or somehow adjusted to today, I think that period looks very well. The trade from Michael would actually fit that period well too. Andreas, what do you say and we go have a beer and we close yeah. the macro um, as you can see if you're watching on youtube i'm still uh, placed at uh, the lovely island of ischia uh, just outside of naples so very close to where you're uh, born and raised basically elf um and i'll stay here for another 10 days or so um so i'm trying to enjoy myself even though the markets are not really giving me a green flag to do so <laughs> go and have some fried calamari or a good pizza for i'll me, do please Guys, thanks for, uh, for listening to the Macro Trading Floor. Talk to you next Sunday.